listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone, please know that this episode talks about grieving when someone dies of suicide. If you or someone you know needs support, please reach out. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at one 800 273 8255, or you can text hello to 741-741. This is the story of how a random encounter on a street corner between two high school seniors turned into a friendship that has lasted for more than 50 years. Rick Knapp and David Pincus had a lot in common when they first met. They both loved baseball. They both grew up in New York. They both had a budding interest in photography. And they also both had a secret, a secret that was unique to each of them, but also similar. Not long into their friendship, they both revealed that their mothers had died and had died of suicide. While things have started to change, back in the 1960s, the shame and stigma associated with having someone die of suicide was clear and palpable, even if it wasn't directly talked about. Imagine being David or Rick and finally finding someone your own age who shared a similar story, someone you could talk with about things that no one else in your life was willing or able to. From that fortuitous meeting, David and Rick grew up and their friendship grew with them. 50 years later, David and Rick decided to go public with their stories, along with two other friends who also had a parent die of suicide. They recently released their book, Sons of Suicide, in the hopes that others who are grieving someone who died of suicide will feel less alone. In a sense, the book gives readers a chance to experience what David and Rick experienced when they took the risk to say, hey, my mom died. She died of suicide. David, Rick, and I talk about the message they received from family and friends about how having a mom die of suicide was something you didn't talk about. It was something to be ashamed of. It was maybe even a sign that there's something wrong with you and your family. We also talk about how their friendship was vital for both of them in uncovering and working through the ways these messages got internalized. Oh, one thing to note, listeners, something was a little wonky in our recording, so you might hear some weird clicks when Rick is talking. Apologies. David and Rick, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you, Jenna. We appreciate being here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And I know we're going to talk a lot about the book that you wrote, Sons of Suicide, and sort of the life story that you've shared of over 50 years of friendship. But let's start at the beginning, just so listeners can kind of like catch up with where you all are today. And I'm curious, when your mothers died, because each of you had a mom die of suicide, how did you find out and how did the adults talk or not talk to you about it? And, And Rick, wondering if you want to start us off. Sure, I can do that. My mother uh, died when I was uh, 14. 
she, we lived outside Dayton, Ohio in Kettering, and she had gone to a hotel for a couple of days just to get away from the house and the kids and have a little quiet time to herself. And uh, my father and sister and I went to pick her up at the hotel. And my father left the, parked the car in a parking garage right adjacent to the hotel and said, I'll be right back with your mom. And we waited and it wasn't right back. It took quite a while. <clears throat> and I tried entertaining my sister for a while. And then uh, some gentleman who we didn't know came to the car and asked who we were and confirmed it and said that our dad would be with us shortly. But it was still a very long time and I still entertained my sister quite a bit uh, until I looked out the window to my left and there was our rabbi and my dad coming down the ramp of the parking garage and I knew something was terribly wrong. We, he, they got to the car. I mean, I was already crying. My dad did, did not want to tell me, tell me or my sister. He uh, looked to the rabbi to do that. And the rabbi looked back at him and said, no, Mark, you have to tell him. That's when he told us that our mother had passed away. He never used the word suicide, though. Never said that she had taken her own life. I found that out other ways. And how did you find out? It became obvious later when some of the uh, family, my grandparents were visiting, it became obvious she died of a combination of an overdose of pills and some alcohol and had left a note, although my father said she always signed her notes and this one wasn't signed. And so that's kind of how he justified perhaps to himself and certainly to the kids that this was accidental, but it was clear it was not. And do you remember, Rick, how how did that change things for you when you found out how she died? Well, I think the shock was there no matter how she died. I, I was in just a state of disbelief and great grief. Uh, I felt very numb and in a fog for a couple of years. And it was something that it was very difficult to talk to anybody about. Indeed, we didn't talk at all about it. I didn't have any extended family in you know, near where we lived. Uh, they were in New York and we were in Ohio. And it, uh, so there was really no one to talk to. My dad didn't talk about it. And I was very sensitive to the fact that he was suffering his own grief, uh, dealing with it himself and worried about the kids and how he would raise my sister and me and my brother who was then away at college. Uh, and do his job. And so it, nobody talked about it. So it sort of went the way things tended to go, especially back in the 1950s and 60s of just not talking about it. And everyone's kind of left to their own devices to figure out what happened and how am I going to adapt to this? That's right. And, and David, I want to give you an opportunity to share about how you found out that your mom had died and how the adults in your life talked to you or didn't talk to you about it. Well, strangely, in my case, I, I, I almost felt it before I learned about it. The morning after she had taken her life, when I did not yet know about it, I woke up with a, a, a strange gnawing feeling in my stomach uh, that I'd never had before and have never had since. It was this sense of doom uh, I realized later. In fact, she had been in, in a hospital because two months earlier, she had attempted suicide. I had only seen her once since then. 
when she had been given a furlough from the hospital to have lunch with my father, my younger sister, and I. At that lunch, I realized for the first time how sick she was and how overwrought she was. I took a mental picture of her as we left, sensing it might be the last time that I saw her. And so on, on the day that she had finally succeeded after a number of attempts, my father told my sister and I, as in Rick's case, without ever using the word suicide. And in fact, he said, do you remember what happened to mommy in California? We had lived in California before, we were now in New York. And my first thought was the back surgery that she had had. But indeed what he was re referring to was another attempt she had made when my father had to break down the front door uh, after she had taken a bottle of pills and I was there and I watched it. Yet, as in Rick's case, my father never used the word suicide after that. It remains one of the great mysteries to me, looking back on that time and the hush-hush nature of the word suicide. And uh, it, it permeated society from top to bottom. And I know we talked a little bit about this already in terms of how your dads were not clear with you. They didn't openly use the word suicide. And that oftentimes folks who have had someone die of suicide experience a lot of judgment and shame and stigma. And, and there's sort of an understanding now, like, yes, yes, we know that happens. But I was just curious for you all as teenagers in the 60s, like, how did you know that that stigma existed apart from people just not talking about it? Well, I think we can give you several examples of that. Uh, my father knew the editor of the Dayton Daily News, and he called the editor and asked the editor in any notice about the police going to the hotel or ob obituary that the newspaper might write, that they not explain, describe the cause of death. So it was very clear right there in, in my own home that there was a stigma around it. We saw that a number of times. I think some of it was also internalized as a result. So it became its own stigma within me. David, you, you had similar experiences. So. Yeah, uh, I, I was, uh, my, my mother died in late August. It was a couple weeks after my 13th birthday. And so a few weeks after her death, I, I was starting eighth grade new school. And the uh, homeroom teacher uh, called me over to fill out some paperwork. And in doing so, she began asking questions about my parents. And when she got to my mother, she said, what, what does your mother do? And I remember not being able to respond at first. I, I didn't know what to say. Finally, as she waited, looking at me quite quizzically, I, I said she died. And she said, when did she die? And I said, August 24th. She said, what year? I said, this year. She just went silent. And then she said, well, how did she die? I, I didn't want to answer. And finally she coaxed me. And when I said suicide, her eyes went wide. And I realized at the same time, it was the first time I had said it out loud since the death. 
when Rick and I were working on the book, I couldn't think of the teacher's name. I kept saying, uh, uh, uh. So we ended up calling her in the book, Mrs. Uh. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Zell uh looked at me with the saddest eyes and took pity on me, which I, I shivered at being looked at that way. And that was the way she looked at me through the entire school year. And as I learned later, she had also shared that background with some of the other teachers who began to look at me the same way. That was a case where I think I realized much later the stigma that suicide carried. And I felt it in that way, even though I didn't know what I was feeling at the time. Yeah, I would say that a couple other things that have happened, and I think David and I experienced this also, the suicide of our mothers caused a real rift in the family. My mother's mother and sisters blamed my father, essentially cut off all contact with my father and therefore with my brother, sister, and me. So we lost not only my mother, but that whole side of the family. Yeah, and in, in, in my case, uh, the same happened. My mother's mother and sister blamed my father for her death. And I think this may go to the stigma as well. In the Jewish religion, uh, the gravestone is unveiled a year later. My father had already remarried at that time. So it was my grandmother, my mother's mother, who put up the stone. My sister and I attended. And when it was unveiled, what I saw was beloved mother, sister, and daughter, no wife. I was so taken, shaken by that. I started leaving the cemetery until my uncle coaxed me to come back. But, of course, it still stands that way. Uh, it's always been difficult to go to the grave and see that. It was out of blame and shame uh, and anger that that happened. And I, I felt at the time I was the only one who realized that, that was missing on the stone. As you're both talking, it, it makes me think about how stigma is rarely, if ever, an intrinsic experience. It's not something that rises up naturally out of us individually, that it gets built in relationship and in the responses that we receive from other people to what we share about our lives and also in how other people construct a response to, in this case, a death and how your grandparents and your extended family responded, how teachers responded, that those things come together and then create that sense of stigma, which then gets internalized and starts to feel intrinsic. That, that's true. And I tell you, we have uh, in our book, it's not only the two of us who are sons of suicide, but two other good friends, guys we had known for quite a long time, one of them for, what, 20 years or so. Yeah. And we discovered somewhere along the way, uh, each of them had lost a parent to suicide as well. It was actually astounding to learn that, that over 20 years of close relationship not knowing that something that's so so foundational to who a person is and i think that a good portion of the reason for that is stigma and embarrassment perhaps a some shame or sense of guilt and it was after we discovered it and the four of us started talking that they opened up to us and we to them for the first time so when when we found out with 
Tom, who we had known for 20 years as a very close friend, it was accidental. Uh, it slipped out. He was just talking about something else and mentioned that his father had, had killed himself. I remember Rick and I looking at each other like we, we couldn't believe this was happening again. Even though we were close friends, it drew us even closer as we refer to each other now as, as brothers. And the same happened with, uh, with Dennis, the fourth member of our group. The four became close first through emails where everyone opened up. And then the one time, still the one time that the four of us gathered together in Chicago for a weekend, it all came out again showing the need that that's always there to want to let this out, to share it, to hear other stories. And so the sons in, in our book, Sons of Suicide, is not just us, it's, it's four sons. In a way, then, the, the friendship that the two of you created, it was almost an anomaly because you found out and talked pretty early on in your connection about the fact that you'd both had a mom die of suicide and just wondering, like given the circumstances and given sort of the context, social context in the, in the sixties of people just not talking about this, how did you two figure that out about each other so early on in your friendship? I'm not quite sure how Uh, the fact is that we met by coincidence catching a bus to school in March in our senior year of high school. Uh, we talked some on the bus and on the way home. And uh, a couple of days later, we wound up taking a walk and going to uh, where David was living at the time, his aunt and uncle's house, and chatting some. And the natural thing was, oh, where are you from? And where are your parents? And somehow, very cautiously, I think, very tenderly, touched on the subject. And once each of us discovered that the other one had uh, a mother who died by suicide, it, it really opened things up and the, the floodgates really opened. It was uh, you know, two and a half years since my mother had died by suicide, a little bit longer since David's mother had. And all that time, we really didn't talk to anybody, a little bit with my sister, but she was five years younger than me. So it was uh, happenstance and, and good fortune in many respects that, that we discovered that about each other. And David, what, what do you remember about the feeling when you, when you both shared it? I mean, I noticed, in, at least in this part of the book for you all, Rick does a lot of the question asking. He's like the, he pushes at it first and you're sort of the reluctant answerer. And I was just wondering what that was like for you to come forward with this information and be met with someone who said, yeah, my mom died of suicide too. It was to my surprise, a, a huge relief. I viewed it very much as, as, as a burden that I was carrying and in a way still do, but though much, much less now. One of my clearest recollections of right after Rick and I had the first conversation, which we have tried to reconstruct in in the book, I came down and told my aunt what had happened. And I can still see the smile on her face and the tears running down her cheeks because she knew how much I needed someone to talk to, but hadn't found anyone and had refused to talk to anyone else. So it was 
like the, the clouds parting and the sunshine coming through. I, I might add that at the time there were re relatively few resources available for anybody, but particularly for children who were suffering the loss of a parent or other kinds of uh, severe grief or traumatic loss. Uh, thank goodness that there are places like the Dougie Center now where, where people can get together, where there are resources available and you don't have to rely on fate uh, meeting on a street corner by coincidence, discovering this commonality. Because until then, it seemed like I was the only one in the world who possibly could have gone through this. But even recently, just as we were finishing our writing the book, uh, my wife and I were at a little dinner party. There were four couples. And before dinner, uh, the four guys were standing around having a drink. And and one of them asked, well, Rick, what have you been doing since you retired? And I told him some volunteer work that I'm doing and we've done some travel and uh, uh, get to spend more time with family and, and I'm writing a book. Well, the natural question then was, well, what's the book about? And I briefly, very briefly explained it. And one of the guys said, well, that's quite a coincidence. My father took his life when I was in my early twenties. And our host said, well, gee, Rick, you know, that's really interesting. I'll bet you once your book is published that people come out of the woodwork, you'll find out all kinds of people who have lost someone to suicide. At the end of the evening, everybody had left except my wife and me, and I, we were helping clean up. And then uh, my host, uh, our host walked me to the door and he said, you know how I told you people would come out of the woodwork? I said, yeah. He said, my mother took her life when I was... I think it was in his late, late teens. So there were four guys there. Three of, three of us had lost a parent to suicide. You know, what, I don't know what the odds of that are. And here, this, our host did not feel comfortable saying it, even though two of us had already said it. He still has not told, officially told his daughter, or his adult daughter knows it, but he's never talked to her about it. And I think other than his wife, I'm the only one he's really talked to about it at all. So the stigma still exists, even, uh, even though we've made it a long way from the 60s when David and I experienced that tremendous loss. There's so much that you had in common when you met. And your love of baseball, having both been born in New York, both having had moms die of suicide when you were very similar in age. And so there can be assumption like, and then everything else was the same too. But I'm wondering, you know, we all grieve in our own way. Like, how did you find yourselves grieving differently from one another, both then and, and now in your ongoing lives? Well, I think in one way we were different is that for me afterwards, I was driven to try to figure out why. Uh, I needed to know because once my mother had passed away, I began to realize that all these snippets of life that I had observed as a naive kid, nobody really explained to me. Like when my, my mother had taken the pills and my father knocked out the front door, he told me the next day she had just been overtired. And so she didn't, she made a mistake and took too many pills. And I accepted it at that time. But once it was over and I realized much more, I became driven to try to figure it out. Fortunately, I had an uncle 
who was willing to answer honestly every question I put to him. And in the days right after her death, before the funeral, I stayed by his side constantly, peppering him with questions. And, and when he didn't know, he told me. And it was the first adult who had done that. And it made a huge, huge difference. But I even went beyond that. A few months later, as I tried to piece it all together, it was like a puzzle. I went to the mental hospital where she had been and I demanded to speak to her doctors. Here I am, 13-year-old kid standing in there demanding that. Uh, I stood there all day until finally, I think they took some pity on me. And one of the doctors came out. And while I think he essentially gave me very pap answers to my questions, I felt somewhat vindicated that I got something out of that visit. But it became a lifelong adventure, if you will, to try to figure out why she was the way she was. After many years, I came to a point where I felt like I understood enough and I wasn't going to get any more anyway. Doing this book, which was a seven-year odyssey, taking us back in time, really has allowed me, I think, to come to more clear-cut terms with what I do know and what I never will know. And Rick, your, your response was quite different, wasn't it? Well, my grieving was very internal. Uh, actually, something David and I had in common, while neither of us is particularly observant as a Jew, one thing that I did was shortly after my mother died and my sister and I would go to our Sunday school class. If we got there a little bit early, we'd go sit in the sanctuary, the temple, in the dark, just the eternal light on, and just sit there quietly. Tried doing a few things to memorialize my mother, bought some prayer books for the, for the synagogue that would have a little template in the saying in memory of, of Dorothy Knapp. I still have a few artifacts of hers, a brass uh, cigarette box that I actually gave her when I was a kid uh, that I still have. But for the most part, it was internal grieving. So interesting that, you know, David, you were on this quest to find out information. And Rick, you were much more internal. And yet, Rick, you were the one asking David questions all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's because I maybe it was a, a precursor to being a journalism major. So, <laughs> And I'm curious. I mean, I, there's the obvious of like finding each other and being like, I'm not the only one going through this. There's somebody else who understands it on some level. But what was it about your friendship, especially in those early years, that you that was so fortifying and so helpful? Uh, I think in addition to the other things that we had in common that kind of created the type of friendship that a lot of teenagers might have, talking about baseball or talking about what we're going to do after high school, maybe talking once in a while about girls. I think the fact is that once we discovered that we shared this common tragedy and that the other person could listen without being judgmental, could understand and identify with it, even though that some of, some of the details were different, I think that made a huge difference. And I will also say that listening 
made a big difference. My my ability to listen to David made me feel I wasn't the only person in the world. I could share information with him because he was sharing it with me. And David, how about for you? What would you say was kind of like the the really helpful part of that friendship in the early early years of your grief? Well, I, I think it was a combination of our shared loss of our mothers to be able to share the burden, as, as I uh, mentioned before, in, com- in combination with uh, just becoming friends as friends. The, uh, and it sort of all came together. But I think at the heart of it was the ability to talk about the past that we had not been able to talk to with anyone else. And indeed, un- until now, we had really not talked to anyone else except each other. And it, it really was one of the scarier prospects, certainly more for me, I think, than for Rick, it's just as it is right now to be talking as I am. But it's gotten a little bit easier. I, I doubt it'll ever be easy. That, that too may apply to what helped bring us together, was the ability to, uh, to move between the personal and, and the more common. We uh, dubbed our, our serious talks as soul sessions. So in those early years, when we did that more, we'd say, I, I, I think I need an SS. And it was our shorthand. We knew uh, it was time to sit down and have a serious talk. Yeah, you're, you're dating us, David. Soul sessions. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've observed a number of times, though, that benches, park benches, keep popping up in our story. Uh, early on, when we'd go for walks and we'd sit and we'd talk for some time in the park uh, between our two houses. Later, when we discovered that uh, our friend Tom had lost his father to suicide, that was on a park bench. There are a couple of other occasions, and that's why on the cover of the book, we have a, a park bench. And we've said before that the park bench was our substitute for a psychiatrist's couch, which probably also dates us a little bit. And we were each other's uh, counselors. So, David, you talked a little bit about like that, that quest around the question why, which I think is a question that so many people who have had someone in their life die of suicide really grapple with. It's like, why did this happen? But the other question that I think the two of you seem to really delve into in the book is, what would have been different if parsing out like, how has this death, my mom's death shaped my life? And you've had 56 years together of sort of watching each other's lives unfold and just wondering if, I mean, I would ask you each, normally, I would say like, Rick, tell me how you think this has affected your life. And David, tell me how you think, but I'm going to ask like, Rick, how do you think this has shaped David's life? choices. And David, how do you think it shaped Rick's life choices as an observer of one another? Well, that's a very good question. And I think that it has, it's hard to parse these things out. Who knows what affected what, but certainly there's nothing more profound in either of our lives than the deaths of our mothers to, to suicide. I think it has made David a very empathetic person. I think it has meant that he values uh, friendships more than anybody I know and does as much as anybody I know to nurture those friendships and 
make sure that they are sustained over time. Uh, and I really admire that. And it's not just friendships, it's relationships in general, certainly with his, his wife and his two children and his four grandchildren as well. And I admire and respect that. I think that's, that's a nice thing to have been bequeathed to him by his mother in unfortunate circumstances. Mm-hmm. I'm not used to hearing that, but thank you. <laughs> I, I could I, I could say the same of you, of course, uh, and, and, and I will. But I, I think I would add to that. I, I, I think because our lives were completely changed after the death of our mothers. Uh, nothing was the same. Family life, our fathers remarrying, uh, our, uh, our view of ourselves, I think two things jumped to mind that happened. One is I became less accepting of others' explanations without, without some more proof. I, I realized I had been too naive and had accepted when maybe I could have done something more. I, I've been less that way. But I, but I think maybe the one that is common to both of us is valuing time and what we do with it. I know for whatever reason, one of the things that I felt after my mother's suicide was that my life was probably fated to be a short one as well. And it became a motivating force for me to go faster, to do more as I could. Fortunately, I've been, I've been wrong in that belief of that fate. I'm still hanging around. So time is one of those things that I think both Rick and I value. We've done much traveling together with our wives and other friends and family members. And right now in the pandemic, we're we're feeling grounded like everybody else, unable to do what we would like to do. But we appreciate it more than ever because of what we uh, lived through and, and what we've learned. So the question I'm wondering about now is your moms died in the 60s. You found each other and talked pretty openly with one another. But it sounds like there wasn't as much talking openly maybe with the world like you have now with the book and how you've been on interviews and you're on this podcast now. And Wondering, like, what does it feel like to share about this part of your life and your your history so publicly? Wow, that's 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 a a good and tough question. I think it's different for each of us to some extent. Uh, as I mentioned before, for me, this is still terribly difficult. And if you could feel my palms now, you you'd know what I mean. They're pretty pretty moist uh, b- because. Somehow this is taking me back to when this all happened. I've never been able to completely get over this feeling that I, I, I shouldn't share this. I can't share this. It, it hurts too much to share it. Well, it, it doesn't hurt that way now. But the, the fear I had before we finished the book was that in making it public, we would be open to questions. Well, here we are now trying to field such questions. And I think I worry about it partially because it's still so uncomfortable to let out, 
but also because I know that there are no perfect answers. And I would like to be able to give perfect answers, but all we can do, we realized after a while, was share what we've lived through, what we've learned, what we believe, and hope that it's helpful to others who may be in the same position. And that is really what drives us. And that became what we realized this was about for us. And we had to get over any reluctance we had to do what we're doing right now. Yeah, knowing that it's making a difference makes that discomfort worth it to go through it, to know if I share my story, it might make a difference for someone else. That's right. I think uh, I would just echo that. When we decided that we were going to write a book and make it public, particularly when we made our first presentation, uh, it it was very difficult. But uh, we did it for a number of reasons. One is to alleviate some of the stigma around suicide, mental illness, even around suicide survivors. Second, we wanted to shine a light on the, on the problem, on the issues. We also wanted to let people know who had gone through some kind of traumatic loss, certainly suicide, but any kind of traumatic loss, that they're not alone and that it really is helpful to talk, to open up, to share feelings uh, and emotions, not just the facts of what happened, but how you reacted to it. That's tough to do sometimes. When when I was a kid, I couldn't even articulate what the emotions were that I was feeling at the time. And then to say, look, the grief never completely goes away. The loss never disappears. But you can live a pretty darn good life and get through the toughest part of it. So there is hope out there. And finally, what we wanted to do was to share our experience with people who are caregivers in some fashion, the psychologists and psychologists and clergy and parents and teachers to help them gain some perspective about what it's like to go through the loss of a parent to suicide or again, any other kind of traumatic loss. If we can do a little bit of that uh, through our book, uh, through the podcasts, through what we've written uh, for in essays for, for newspapers and other publications, then I think we can feel pretty good about it. And then there are the women who are the origin of this story of your friendship together, of your mothers, of Dorothy and Gloria, and wondering how do you carry them forward? How do you carry their memory forward for your children and your grandchildren who never had the opportunity to meet them in person? In some ways, the book is doing that. While all of our children knew something about the fact that our our mothers took their own lives, uh, I think they were reluctant to ask questions and we didn't talk with them much about it. Uh, The book kind of gave was a way to share that information and those emotions and prompted discussion afterwards. You know, my daughter in particular, and I guess, David, your your daughter and son each read the book or a draft uh, of the manuscript. Uh, it opened up questions more broadly than just in our, in our own family. This is the legacy for our mothers, the, the book, the story, the, the hope that it provides. It's a story not only of profound loss, but of deep 
friendship, the healing power of friendship. When I shared our early manuscript with my son, he told me he stayed up all night to, to read it uh, because it was all new to him. And I was very taken back by that. I uh, was unaware how little I had shared with him. And he, he, he was in his late 40s, is it? As a result of that, uh, several weeks later when I visited him, we, we talked in ways we had never talked before about the past. And I felt very, uh, very much uh, like I had let him down and let myself down and even the memory of my mother because I hadn't shared it. And what he told me was that he always thought that the subject was, uh, was forbidden and it was too painful for me to talk to him about. Therefore, he chose not to ask, whereas my daughter had asked me more questions. So it wasn't all new to her, but a good portion of it was new to her. Maybe proving the point, as Rick noted, that it was much easier for us to write about it than it was to talk about it. Well, Rick and David, I'm, I'm so grateful for your book and for the risk you took to go public with your story and to open up these doors to conversation, not only with your within your immediate families, but also with people who I imagine are reaching out to you about the book and about everyone who's listening to this show and listening to other shows that you've been on. So just like the ripple effect of those doors opening and giving permission to have those conversations and to share about what the experience is like and what the experience can mean to us when someone in our life dies and when someone in our life dies of suicide. So just a lot of gratitude to both of you. So, so Rick and David, I'm just curious if, if listeners want to reach out to you, if they want to connect with you to, you know, follow along with the book and where it's going in the world, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? There are two ways, actually. We have a, a website that's sonsofsuicidebook.com. And the other, and there's a place to put in comments or questions there. And then there's also a, a special email address that we set up. It's sonsofsuicide2020 at gmail.com. And we'd welcome hearing other stories and, and que- answering questions that people may have of us. Well, again, Rick and David, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud. Uh, Listeners, I will put all of that information in the show notes so it's easy to find that as well. But both of you, thank you for being part of the show today. Thank you, Jana. Yes, thank you, Jana, for, for all that you're doing and for helping us to try to share what we have. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time. Thank you so much for being part of the Grief Out Loud community. If you um, are drawn to sharing the show with someone who you think might be helped by it, we'd love for you to do that. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. Our website, dougy.org, is also a great place to learn more about the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families and to listen to all of our past episodes. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.